pray together. Father in heaven, it is a, a stunning prophecy. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, those words were written. And they describe the suffering of our Lord down to the last drop of blood. Lord, we stand in awe of the scriptures and of their power. I pray, Father, that you would uh, take afresh this word this morning as we consider the message of the cross, the, the, the center of our faith, and that you would once again make, make a moment in our lives where the cross, the message of the cross, comes home with that same power. We need your help, and so we lean on you, Holy Spirit. Would you give us the gift of illumination as we consider uh, lots of different scripture passages that, uh, that weave this tapestry of Christ and him crucified? Um, Lord, may our hearts just swell with gratitude that we're a part of a movement that treasures the, the cross of Jesus Christ uh, so uh, profoundly. And uh, Lord, may we move from this place with intentionality that we will live lives worthy of the gospel. Uh, we follow the New Testament pattern in that way. Of course, no one is, is worthy of the death of Jesus, but that we would live lives that reflect that we have been changed by Jesus, who died and rose again for people like us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, this morning we've reached our, our halfway point of our study of the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Uh, today we literally find ourselves at the center of what we believe as a church. And just a reminder that instead of uh, setting out to be in one particular passage of Scripture, we'll be really all over the Bible this morning. So the best thing that you could do is find your bulletin and, and uh, pull out the sermon notes and just fold it out so you can look at Article 5 of the, the Free Church Statement of Faith because all of the, uh, uh, the text that we're going to be looking at really is drawn from Article 5. So theologically speaking, the topic this morning is the work of Christ. Last week we looked at the person of Christ. This week is the, the work of Christ. And although he was a carpenter, we know Jesus of Nazareth was a carpenter, when we speak of the work of Christ, we're thinking of something different. It would be a massive distortion to Jesus' vocation if we were re to reduce his uh, vocation to woodworking. Um, the great irony, of course, though, is that in Jesus' training as a carpenter, his chief vocational accomplishment would be a sort of woodwork. It would be cross work. The cross work of Jesus Christ was the singular devotion of his life. Just days before he laid down his life on the cross, Jesus affirmed this truth right before uh, he went to the cross of Calvary. He said in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. The late John Stott put it this way, From Jesus' youth, indeed from his birth, the cross cast its shadow ahead of him. His death was central to his mission. And the scriptures agree wholeheartedly. Jesus was born to die. So what do we believe about the death of Jesus in this church? Uh, why do Christians insist that the death of their Savior is such good news? 
what is the relationship between the good news and Christ on a Roman torture device? Here's the answer to that question. We believe that the gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. We believe that the gospel, the good news, is accomplished through the work of Christ. Now, recalling what we've already studied in this series so far, that God is the origin of the gospel and that the scriptures are the revelation of the gospel, that the gospel alone addresses our deepest human need and that the gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, we now actually turn to how the gospel comes about. And we believe in the free church that the gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. You can think about it this way in a Trinitarian sense. God the Father appoints us for salvation. God the Son accomplishes our salvation. As, and as we're going to learn next week, the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. So what do we believe about the accomplishment of the gospel? Well, for that, I'd like you to turn to Article 5 of the EFCA Statement of Faith. And you can follow along with me as I read. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. So this morning, we're going to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We are going to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And we're going to do so from three angles. I'd like to draw out of our statement of faith three ways that the work of Christ on the cross sheds light on our understanding of the gospel. And let's remember as a church the purpose of this sermon series. We want to get the gospel right in order to get the gospel out. Christianity is a faith worth sharing. And so we will not be stingy with the gospel in this church. We want to enjoy and treasure the gospel for the purposes of introducing others to Jesus in this great gospel. So let's do a deep dive into Christ's cross work this morning, designed to remind us and refresh us and perhaps in some cases entirely reorient our lives around this cross. Paul called it the matter of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So here's the first point. The work of Christ on the cross proclaims to us the gravity of the gospel. The work of Christ on the cross proclaims, proclaims to us the gravity of the gospel. When we speak of the gravity of the gospel, we're talking about the seriousness of it, the momentousness of it, if you like, the weightiness of it of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is good news. That's what the word gospel means. Glad tidings is another way to translate that word. But we've made a category mistake if we hear the word good news and we simply think happy thoughts or we think wonderful feelings. Um, in fact, it was C.S. Lewis who wrote in his book, The Last Battle, that there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. There is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. And that's what we mean when we talk about the gravity of the gospel or what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us. So let's look at this first sentence. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross. Notice if you're just even looking at the phrase in terms of grammar, the shed blood of Jesus Christ is at the center of this statement. 
See the word as there, A-S, as. It appears twice in the first sentence. In each case, the word as is followed by a phrase that modifies that main point. So we say, uh, as our representative and substitute, or as the perfect all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Well, what do those phrases modify? What are they clarifying? What are they pointing toward? They're pointing toward the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus shed his blood on the cross. That's the centerpiece of Article 5. The shedding of blood has got to be one of the strongest themes that runs from the Bible, through the Bible, Old to New Testament. Um, when the Lord introduced the sacrificial system to the people of Israel, in no uncertain terms, he did so in Leviticus 17.11. Listen to this. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And by the time we get to the New Testament, it's first century Jews who have been steeped in and training in this understanding of the shed blood of a sacrificial animal uh, that routinely begin to employ this language, whether it's Peter or Paul or John, and they do so with reference to the blood of Jesus. So we read in Ephesians 1.7 about Jesus, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or in Ephesians 2.13 it says, but you who are in Christ Jesus, who were once far off, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20 affirms that Christ made peace through his blood on the cross. In Colossians, excuse me, Romans 3.25, Romans 3.25, we have probably the most critical verse in all of the book of Romans as we read that it was Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation is a, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. He, God, uh, God's disposition toward us is turned from wrath to favor as he looks at the blood of his son on the cross. John speaks this way as well, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Finally, 1 Peter 1, 17 to 18, Peter tells his readers, you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of, of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, let's just put this together. According to these passages, the shed blood of Jesus Christ makes possible our redemption, that is, sets us free from our sin, our forgiveness before God, reconciliation with God, the removal of God's wrath from over our heads, and the cleansing of our sins and the ransom of our souls. That's powerful blood, isn't it? But how is it possible? How is it that what Jesus achieved on the cross can be attributed to us? or can be embraced by us? How does that work? Well, it's possible because of two realities that Jesus becomes for us on the cross. The first is that he becomes our representative, and the second is that he's our substitute. Let's look at each in turn here. So Article 5 says, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative shed his blood on the cross. What does that mean? It means that Jesus acts on our behalf. Now this is spectacular news because if you're following the storyline of scripture to this point 
what we find is that because of our union with Adam, we are in deep, deep weeds. If you were here with us two weeks ago, you may recall that we took some time to unfold what it means for human beings, all seven billion people on the planet today, born into union with Adam. It means, as we said last week, that in, or two weeks ago, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Uh, or here, uh, Romans 5.12 and 19 says it this way. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men, because all sinned. And by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So human beings are born sinners. And the scriptures teach us that Adam is our, our representative in this regard. He's, he's acting on our behalf in the Garden of Eden. His rebellion is our rebellion. And before we say, that's not fair, let's remember that human beings in our fallen state are sinners by nature and by choice. Not just by nature. So we're not just born to sin. We love to sin. We live to sin. Because we are born into union with Adam. He's our representative. Now, can you smell something wonderful coming here in Article 5? I hope so. Look with me once more at this phrase in Article 5. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative, shed his blood on the cross. If you are a Christian, you have a new representative. A new Adam. The true Adam. Jesus Christ acting on your behalf. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. Now, my daughter and I wrote a little booklet that's out there in Fellowship Hall called Five Rooms, The Biblical Doctrine of Union with Christ. Uh, if you don't have one, please take one. This is one of the most precious and pervasive teachings in the New Testament. Um, maybe just one text along these lines and we'll move on. How is it that Jesus' death on the cross can be uh, applied to our lives. Well, Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. I have been, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross as our representative. But that's not all. Jesus also shed his blood on the cross as our substitute. So Article 5 of the EFCA Statement of Faith affirms both realities. Christ is our representative and Christ is our substitute. What's the difference? They sound awfully similar in some ways, don't they? What's the difference? Here's the difference. A representative acts on behalf of another. A substitute takes the place of another. As our representative, Jesus goes where we did not physically go. He went to the cross. As our substitute, Jesus goes where we cannot possibly go to absorb the white-hot wrath of God against our sin, removing it from God's view and bringing us into reconciliation with our Creator. So Jesus is our substitute. The biblical teaching regarding the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross is nearly overwhelming. Uh, you heard uh, really one of the first statements of it in Isaiah 53, 4-6. Remember, th these were written seven centuries before Jesus walked the earth. Isaiah 53, 4-6, it's a prophecy about Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it was language like that that gave the New Testament writers fresh encouragement and categories to conclude that the death of Jesus on the cross was what we call a penal substitutionary sacrifice. Penal in the sense that he bore our penalty of sin in himself, in our place. So 1 Peter 2, 21 and 24, Christ also suffered for you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or 1 Peter 3, 8, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And can there be any question that the Bible teaches this, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Can, can there be any sufficient reason not to praise God for this substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross? So we see how central substitu- substitution is when we think about the, the cross work of Christ. Um, Once again, John Stott helps us so much when he writes this. This is helpful. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. You get it? See how weighty a matter the cross is? The shed blood of Jesus on the cross. One of my favorite statements really in all of church history about the cross was written by a Puritan by the name of Thomas Adams. I keep this on my desk. It's been on my desk for some five years now, this quote. In in 1633, Thomas Adams said this, Every sin must be punished either in the person of the Savior or in the person of the sinner. Every sin must be punished either in the person of the Savior or in the person of the sinner. And we believe that the gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. The work of Christ proclaims to us the gravity of the gospel. Secondly, the work of Christ proclaims to us the totality of the gospel. The work of Christ proclaims to us the totality of the gospel. What do I mean by totality of the gospel? I mean the completeness of the gospel, the wholeness of it, the comprehensiveness of it. In other words, Christ's work on our behalf and in our place on the cross is not lacking in any way. Here's how we say it in Article 5. We believe that Jesus Christ is our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. You hear that? The perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Now, the book of Hebrews far and away bears, I think, the most startling testimony to this. And it does so with, with one single word. 
and it's the word once. Once. So Hebrews 7.27 says that Jesus has no need, like the Jewish high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, for since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12, Jesus entered once into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And finally, Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, says that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, maybe just a, a parenthetical statement here as I read that. This occurred to me as I was writing this on Friday and meditating on this. Two particular realities in that passage that I just read struck me. First is the, is the universality of one of the conditions. That is, that it is appointed for man to die once. That's universal. But here's the rarity of the other condition. Those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. So here's a pop quiz. How many of you know someone who will die one day? Hope that's everyone. Just in case this is news for you, it's my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel to remind you of the universal fact of Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. How can you know that you are ready to face the judgment of Almighty God at the end of your life? Hebrews 9.28 answers that question. If you are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. That's how that works. How many folks do you know of whom you could honestly say are eagerly, ardently, expectantly, enthusiastically, earnestly waiting for Christ to return? You see the incongruence here? The mortality rate in the world and in this nation, still hovers right around 100%. Yet, how many people in your life, how many of us here in this sanctuary are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return? Hebrews 9.28 is quite plain. Jesus is not coming to save all people. He's coming to save all people who are eagerly waiting for him. Doesn't this light an evangelistic fire under you? And if you know Jesus, how, how could it not? If you're planning to die at some point, the question is not when or how or where. The question is, am I eagerly waiting for him? Am I prepared to die? If you are eagerly awaiting him, you are already prepared to die. At the end of the day, we are prepared to die when and only when our faith is resting definitively in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Uh, our EFCA leadership offers this comment on the statement of faith. It says, in its perfection, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is all-sufficient. Nothing's lacking from it, and we can add nothing to it. It's complete, fully efficacious, effectual in, in all that is required to atone for our sin. It satisfies the requirements of God's holiness and justice by providing the means of our salvation. 
in its past, present, and future dimensions. And for this reason, Jesus could say on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. There's nothing lacking in the cross work of Christ. Now, there's one scripture that comes to mind before we move to point three, and, and it seems to kind of mitigate against this, and I want to offer a, a reading of it and an interpretation and an application for it. Uh, the scripture is Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24, Paul, re- Paul writes this. See if the scripture has never tripped you up in the past. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Peter once said there are some things in Paul that are hard to understand. I would submit that this is one of those things. Colossians 1.24. Did Paul really say that he is filling up in his own flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. Isn't Christ shed blood on the cross the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins? Yeah. Yes, it is. So what, what gives? What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, nothing as to their value. We cannot add or subtract to the value of the blood of Jesus. It's infinitely valuable. The sufferings of Christ are simply not lacking in that sense. What's lacking in the world today, especially in the West, is a visible representation of those sufferings uniquely in his people in the church. That's why Paul says what he says here. Listen to him again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. The the physical body of Jesus on the cross was a bruised and torn and beaten body. Here's my question. Is the body of Jesus Christ in the church today, particularly in America, a bruised and torn and beaten body? In other words, what does our witness to the world around us teach them about the worth of Jesus? Could we honestly say here in this church that we are filling up in our own sufferings for the name of Jesus what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Are we giving people a visible representation of the cross work of Jesus by the way that we live our lives, the sacrifices we make, the persecutions that we endure? It should cost us time, reputation, esteem, finances, relational investment, relational discomfort, one day perhaps even your physical safety maybe even your very life. Are you offering all that you are to him? Because rest assured, he has offered all that he is for you. The work of Christ proclaims the totality of the gospel. Okay, one final point today, and we're done. We believe that the gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. The work of Christ proclaims to us the exclusivity of the gospel. The work of Christ proclaims to us the exclusivity of the gospel. So final sentence in Article 5 reads this way. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground 
for salvation. Jesus' atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. As I mentioned earlier, we want to be sure to preach the the whole gospel in this church, the, the resurrection as well as the crucifixion, the empty tomb every bit as much of the cr- as the cross. Our, our great hope isn't simply that Jesus died, but that Jesus was raised on the third day. That's what makes the good news good news. Raised to immortal, indestructible, never to die again, physical life. So the cross and the empty tomb go together. You, you can't have one without the other and not have the gospel, the, po- the whole gospel. Looking at our statement of faith, That much is evident as you look at the grammar of the sentence once again. Notice we don't say the atoning death and resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation, as if the crucifixion and resurrection should ever be thought of apart from one another. They shouldn't be. The language is explicit. The the atoning death and victorious resurrection of Jesus constitute the only ground, singular, together. Two realities, one ground. The cross and the empty tomb are meaningless apart from one another, but together they comprise the good news of the gospel. And the last word I just want to drill down on in closing is found in that final phrase, the only ground for our salvation. And it's the modifier to that word ground, namely, only. Only. Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the, say it with me, only ground for salvation. Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If the salvation of humanity were possible any other way apart from the death of Jesus on the cross, don't you think his father would have spared him those gruesome six hours on Calvary on Good Friday? Of course he would have. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn that there is no other way for us to be saved or for anyone to be saved. Jesus must be damned. It is not possible for God to spare his son the cup of his holy wrath against sin. Not if he's going to save us. He can't rescue Jesus from the cross and us at the same time. And that brings us to a teaching like Acts 4.12. This is the last scripture I'll share today. Acts 4.12 says, Therefore there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And make no mistake, you must be saved or you will be cursed eternally. So if you turn from Jesus, there's nowhere else to turn. Like we sang in the song, Show Us Christ, where else would we go? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So don't make the mistake of turning from Jesus. There's nowhere else to turn. Don't turn from him, turn toward him. Turn toward him today. May God grant you to turn toward Jesus today. The work of Christ proclaims to us the exclusivity of the gospel. Well, let's sum up. We believe that the gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. 
the work of Christ proclaims to us the gravity of the gospel, the totality of the gospel, and the exclusivity of the gospel. So next week, Lord willing, uh, baby willing, we will hear from Pastor Seth, whose wife is very, very close to delivering. His sermon that he is preparing is called The Application of the Gospel, What We Believe About the Holy Spirit. Now, their little daughter, Alethea, is due Tuesday, October 25th, trusting she doesn't arrive two days early. Seth will open the word for us. If she does appear early, we're going to have to call an audible, and uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But for now, be praying for this family, for Seth as he prepares his sermon for next week, for Brianna as she prepares to give birth to their first child, and for little Alethea as we get to meet her in the days ahead. They've got a big week coming up either way, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. All we've done is, is go right to the foot of Calvary and survey that wondrous cross from several different angles. Lord, we stand in awe of the gravity of the gospel, the weightiness of it all, the profoundness of it. We thank you for the totality of the gospel, that the gospel's enough. It is the comprehensive rescue for our lives. We never move on the cross, only more profoundly into the cross. And we thank you, Lord, for the exclusivity of Jesus. He's so clear in John 14, 6. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. And we thank you that you have been so clear with us this morning. We pray that we would go from this place eager to commend Christ to those that we love, those who are in our families and in our neighborhoods, among whom we have friendships that we work and play with. Lord, that we would be a church so filled up with the message of Christ and Him crucified and risen that it spills onto other people as we interact with them. Thank you for your gospel this morning, Jesus. It is good news indeed. For your glory we pray. Amen.